Good to see you, Matthias. A lot. You look beautiful. Even though I'm looking down, I, I, I just know it. I love nights when you... Um, I love nights when you already just can sense a strong move of God's spirit in our place and anxious to see how that will continue to transpire. I have a few items of business first uh, to go through. Uh, first of all, some of you guys have seen these dazzling little uh, black half sheet folders. Look, I'm just going to be real with you. You have an amazing opportunity for you. We're getting ready tonight to start a new book. Okay, really excited. It's going to take us a year. If you do this diligently... You could literally take notes every single night here and then grab the teaching journal as you leave, which is out in the back. And at the end of 1 Peter, this entire thing could just be filled with love nuggets. You know what I mean? I mean, you can have this on your shelf from here and your kids, you know, when they're grown big and you're just, you're like, look at 1 Peter back in the day, you know, and it's all in this night. And you can, you can make, a, make a cover for it. Put a little, you know, like you used to do on your uh, Trapper Keepers. Anybody for a Trapper Keeper now? Hey, you kids don't know it, all right? You don't, but a trapper keeper was the place to be. You know what I'm saying? And Jay Scott, you know you had a big fluorescent pink one, bro. You know you did. So grab one of these. This, one of you guys not have one of these yet? This is the only Matthias giveaway. Do you have one of these right here? You do? Do you have one of these? Do you have one of these? Dude, this is a phenomenal example. Awesome. Way to go, guys. Here you go, right there. That's, that's all for you. That's $2 value right there. All right, don't kid yourself. Don't get too excited. So here, here's, our, here's our situation tonight. We've been a church for nearly four years, over four years. We studied Genesis. Uh, that took us a while, 18 months. Luke, two years. First uh, John, nearly a year. And tonight uh, we start First Peter. And this will take us a year. Um, we will move through it very slowly and anticipatorily. And anxiously, and um, look for me, this this book comes at a perfect time for us as a church. And I have to be honest. Look, my heart is heavy tonight um, because of what we're going to be wrestling with here. And we'll get through all of two verses tonight. So off to a good start. Um, but my heart's heavy tonight, and so we're going to work through a tremendous amount of scripture in theology and doctrine so that at the end of tonight we can ask ourselves a very poignant question. Okay, so without further ado, please grab the Bible that's in front of you or open yours and turn to 1 Peter towards the back of your Bible. And um, we're going to jump right in here and, and not waste time. We have a lot to get through tonight. And I know... Um, with God's spirit moving, that it will speak mightily to us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we'll all remember this moment. Here's when we started. So remember next uh, November when we're done. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's going to be several pauses, okay? Anytime that you begin to study uh, a letter, a book of the Bible... There are several questions that you better answer. And for many of you in your laziness, you don't do that. And so you don't build a context for which the letter or the book was written to. The first thing we, know, we need to know is authorship. Uh, the date when it was written is sometimes helpful. In this case, it's very helpful. And we'll talk about that here in a second. You want to know who he's writing to. 
You want to have an idea of the audience. All of these things are important questions when beginning the study, even if it's in your room. All of the information you can find uh, online from valuable sources like esvstudybible.org and the like, all right? So our first question tonight then is who wrote 1 Peter? Where you're like, oh, hey, Mark, Peter is the first word of the scripture. And my title says Peter, so I'm assuming it's Peter. That's a good assumption. I do believe that Peter wrote it. Uh, however, all right, just because there's a name attached to a letter or a book, we need to pause. Especially in this time in ancient Jewish culture, people were attaching names to all kinds of different books to try to get their thoughts out and just by placing a name on it to give it authority. But in this case, in Second Peter, we see mentioned about Peter writing a- another letter validating First Peter. Uh, we also have some other things that we'll uh, journey through in chapter 5 that will help, uh, help show the picture that this is, in fact, Peter. So, I do believe that Peter wrote this, which is largely significant. Why? Because if Peter wrote this, then, then we have a phenomenal picture of who he is. There are several authors in the Scripture where we don't know a lot about their life. But Peter, my friends... Peter, we know a tremendous amount about. If he were to do a background check, we would have a phenomenal picture of who he is. So can we, for a moment, go through his resume, shall we? First of all, he was a fisherman. Any of you like to fish here? By being that, you, like, you love boredom and you love smelly hands. Okay, Peter did too. He was a fisherman, and, and not just a fisherman, but he was kind of a, a leader of the pack type fisherman. Um, we see him being called by Christ. Uh, he's in this inner sanctum of disciples. Interesting to note, Peter, uh, for a few steps, walks on water. You know what I'm saying? That's something that you will never experience before. Uh, even though um, in Bruce Almighty, we see a picture of it that, that didn't happen. Okay, just in case you were wondering. Um, we see Peter at the transfiguration. He met Moses and Elijah. And you remember that Peter is the one who says, hey, it's good for us to be here. Should we build some tents so we can hang on to this moment? Uh, Peter told Jesus, even though all will fall away, I never will. He said that. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus tells Peter that you are the rock. And that's what his name means. Cephas, Peter, means rock. And he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Jesus also tells Peter, "Uh, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Because Peter was trying to distract Jesus from suffering. We see Peter cut off the ear of Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane, puffing out his biceps a little bit. We see Peter falling asleep in the garden, even though Jesus asked him to pray. We see Peter denying the name of Christ three times, including a servant girl, probably nine or ten. That's embarrassing. I love Peter. Because I feel like I relate to him. There are so many people in the scripture that you, you have this kind of heroic picture of them. You know, like if only I were wearing their t-shirt. You know, if only I had a David t-shirt. Then, but, but Peter's one of these guys that you can relate to because he just, it's just like he's on this, like some days he just, he seems like he's right there. And then other days he is an absolute moron, you know, and, and And so me personally, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. But the one thing that we know about Peter throughout the Gospels is he wants it, man. 
He wants to follow Christ. He wants the real deal. Ultimately, he is desirous of those things. So much so that the Pentecost happens. And who is standing in front of the believers? Anyone? You could take a guess and probably be right here. Peter. That's right. Moses. Good try. I did mention that a second ago, but false. Okay. Fail for you. Right? No. Peter's the one standing up. In Acts chapter 3, anyone know what Peter does? He heals in the power of Christ a lame beggar. Pretty significant moment because 50 days earlier he was just denying the name of Jesus. And then 50 days later he says, in the name of Jesus, walk. In Acts chapter 12, he is imprisoned because of the gospel and an angel releases him. You guys remember the story? He's a part of some powerful things. One of the stories that I always like to talk about about Peter is that there's a church group that's gathering to pray for his release. And he gets released and he heads to that same house and Rhoda, the servant girl, comes to the door and Peter knocks on it and Rhoda's like, it's you. And she goes back and tells everyone, hey, Peter is here. He got the thing we're praying for. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, they go back and it's this great reunion. I think it's cool. Um, I, I relate to the brother. He wants it so bad. But he's just on this roller coaster. But post Pentecost, something happens. Um, we know, listen, we know that his life ends in a crucifixion upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. Yes. That's, that's Peter. And I think there will be moments as we're journeying through this that will relate to him a little bit more and maybe moments like even tonight where we'll be like, I've got a long way to go. Um, but this is who we're studying. A dude who is very seasoned, who has seen a lot of things and been a part of a lot of movements and deep in his heart does not want to settle for anything less than the real thing. Are you guys with me? That's Peter. Now, a key understanding for us is the date in which it is written. You remember, we just got done studying John. John was written somewhere in the mid to late 90s AD, probably. Um, Peter, we have some clues. First of all, Paul was in Rome. Now, why would Rome be significant? It's significant because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter mentions this place name of Babylon. Well, Babylon is a real place, but the problem is in Revelation, Babylon is mentioned four, probably five times, depending on your interpretation. And every time in Revelation that Babylon is mentioned, it's referring to Rome. And so when Peter, at the time that he mentions Babylon, we can only assume that Peter writes from Rome. Now, this is significant because Paul was in Rome probably from 60 to 62 A.D. And the four letters that Paul writes from Rome, not in one of them does he mention Peter, giving us indication that if Peter was probably there in Rome, that Paul would have mentioned him, but he doesn't. So I think that gives us a bottom line for the date, let's say 62 A.D. Now, the top line, I'm going to put it 68 A.D., and here's why. In 64 A.D., that's a lot of dates, don't get confused. At 64 A.D., the persecution of the Christian church takes a new level by the uh, Roman emperor Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe your CD-ROM burns with that kind of program, you know. And, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
Nero starts persecuting Christians in a massive proportion. In fact, there's this massive fire in Rome. Uh, people say mostly so he could rebuild and build a bigger palace for himself. But this happens about 64. We know that Peter dies somewhere in between 64 and 68. Personally, I'm going to put him at about 64 to 66. So, Peter wrote this between 62 and let's say 66. Why is that significant? It's not always in the scripture the date. But in this case, he is. It's significant because he's writing at a time when Christian martyrdom is growing. Where people are dying because of their faith. In fact, we're going to catch on very quickly that one of the major themes in 1 Peter is how to endure during trial and suffering. Peter writes at a very important time in the Christian church. He writes at a time when people are dying and he is swooping in, trying to give encouragement even after having already participated in suffering himself. So are you guys with me? Now the place that he writes to, we'll get better indication here in a second, but let's close this little intro with the rest of the first phrase. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now what Peter does in his intro is he uses a term that's going to bring focus on his authority in which he writes. An apostle is like an ambassador for the president. The president can't go everywhere, and so what, what does he do? He hires ambassadors, elects, how do, how, do the, how do they work? Do they get voted? Who knows? The president has some, ambassadors, let's call them. And he sends them to certain areas of the world with a what? With a purpose. An apostle is one who is sent from a person of authority with a mission. And so Peter is an apostle sent out from Christ with a very specific mission. We see his mission all throughout Acts is planting churches and the gospel is spreading. And here in this particular instance, it's to encourage a particular group of people in which we'll study here in a second. So Peter, an apostle of who? Of Jesus Christ. He's writing under the authority of Jesus. Not some other God which Roman uh, culture would have been privy to. Not under Zeus. Not under um, the Artemis, the Ephesus goddess. No. I, Paul, or I, Peter, right, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Now he goes on to say a very, very interesting phrase. <laughs> to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. <laughs> it's a good thing he starts off real soft here. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, how you doing? Gonna drop some of the deepest theology in my intro, you know? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Cue the map. Horrible timing on the map. There we go. Uh, that was set up so perfectly for a dramatic moment. Now, we just got studying John. You guys remember where John wrote? He wrote to an area of the world called what? Asia Minor. It's the exact same area of the world that Peter's writing to, Asia Minor. All of these countries you'll see, and all these uh, provinces, rather, of Rome, you'll see gathered right here. The difference is when John writes, he writes to a Gnostic-ridden land. In other words, there was this false doctrine in Christology that had entered the Asia Minorin church called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was present here, but that's not the reason why Peter writes. 
But this gives us an idea in the area of the world, modern-day Turkey, uh, to where um, Peter is writing. Now, now let's wrestle with the tasty treat that is the elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, anyone want to break that down a little bit? Now, some of you, when you hear the word elect, you instantly go into a frenzy circus inside. You love that word. Um, for some of you, it's been the cause of most of your Christian conversations. Uh, for, for others of you, you, you've heard the term, but you're not sure what it means. And for others of you, you have no idea and are currently confused and are ready to leave. But I, I want to try to bridge the gap for all of us. Look, if we teach the scripture, what the scripture says, and we don't create some cool diagrams that are extra biblical, but we just teach the word, do you agree with me that we'll properly glean what the word has to say? Okay, so we're going to move slowly. We're going to glean what this word in this particular context has to say, because some of you, especially who are privy to the word of to the word elect right now, you want me to go into a dissertation like sweet Mark. So this is going to be the time when Mark, you know, dresses up in a costume and we spend three weeks on, on elect and election. No, we're going to teach this word just like we will every other word in first Peter in its proper context. Are you with me? Now, the Greek word for elect is eklektos. Funny enough, the word means chosen. I can't make it mean something else. I can't come up with a different term for it for those of you that are uncomfortable with that word. The elect means chosen. Peter starts this letter by calling out the group of people which he's writing to. He's writing to the children of God who he says here are chosen by God. Let me put it to you this way. Children of God are chosen by God. Those who are saved, those who have relationship with Jesus, are called the elect because they are chosen. God chooses those who will be his children. Some of you are like, well, give me some evidence. Like, like, I, I just don't want to read it. I want to see it. No problem. Let's start in Genesis chapter 12, shall we? In Genesis chapter 12, there's this man that rises up named Abram. Uh, his more, more popular name is Abraham. The interesting thing about Abram is this. He's a pagan man in a pagan land from a pagan family. That's a lot of pagans. That's like the triple whammy, you know? A lot of pagans. Here's what happens in Genesis chapter 12. God shows up and says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great and your nation is... It's going to be numerous. Abraham was not pursuing God. God shows up and says, Abraham, you're mine. And from you, I'm going to build my chosen people, the Israel nation. So I don't know how you look at it. There is no other argument than God chooses Abraham. And out of Abraham chooses the nation of Israel mostly to show how much we need Jesus. Are you with me? Now, you're like, oh, that's great. That's in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? No problem. Okay. Jesus comes on the scene 
And there is a massive transition from a chosen race or people to now a chosen family, namely the church. So now through Christ, it's not just Jews that are God's children, but God is now, it's Jews and Gentiles. Saul, maybe you've heard of him, Acts chapter 9. Saul is... uh, not a Christian. He's killing Christians. He's persecuting them. Okay. He's not pursuing God. He's not opening his, you know, Torah every day, reading it and gleaning from it. No, he's killing the people that are. And one day God shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is chosen by God. And three weeks later, scripture says he is preaching. It's one thing to read it to the elect or to the children of God or to the Christians in this particular area of the world. But it's another thing to understand in your view of God that God's children are chosen. Now, for some of you, that throws you in into um, all kinds of implications. And um, can I encourage you with this? If you are a believer in this room, the implication that it bears the most is how much you should be humbled to be able to call God your Father. And that should, and we're going to see in the rest of Peter's uh, two verses here, he's imploring these elect to not view their status or now relationship with God as the thing that gives them boasting to man. Rather, it's the thing that should cause all of us to be humbled and celebrate the fact that God has been gracious. Are you with me? It's easy, listen, to have theological conversations that tickle our brains where we walk away feeling like we have a better understanding of what it means to be elect. But if being elect does not continually change our hearts, then friends, we are not children of God. To be chosen by God is to be his follower. And Peter's going to make that crystal clear. How about the word exiles? Parapolidemus is the Greek name. I know that sounds like a dinosaur, but it's not. Uh, thought about that joke all last night. Didn't go over too well. It's like, it sounds funny, dinosaur. No, it doesn't. The word for uh, exiles means a sojourner. A foreigner in a distant land. Now, that could have all kinds of implications for us, right? It's like, so is there some social context that he's calling these Christians exiles because, you know, what's happening here? He's calling them exiles because they're in a primarily pagan culture. Remember, Greek culture with Asian influence with some Jews living there. Theos, chaos, you remember from 1 John. There's a lot happening here. They're exiles because inside... They're celebrating relationship with Jesus, but everything around them is pagan, is distant, is foreign. In other words, that is not their home. They're traveling through. They're a sojourner. It's a foreign land. Not so different from what it should be for you and I. Because here's the thing that is so burdensome for me in the beginning of this study of 1 Peter. He's writing to a group of people who are beginning, if not already had been, suffering for the gospel. 
and I look at us, we've got no clue. We've got no clue what it means to suffer. Listen, let me, let me share this with you. Some of you think that by giving up a little time for Jesus, that that's suffering. You literally think that, you know. You, you serve for an hour doing something. Or, or you took, you know, the coats for kids. And inside you're like, oh, I'm suffering for the gospel, you know. And, and you're just like, we've got no idea. Can I share this with you? And then we're going to come back to this later. After coats for kids, you know what I texted our lot family leaders? Can I tell you? This is not verbatim, but close. My text was, could this be our chance at suffering? And you're like, well, Mark, why would you want that? Why would you want your church to suffer? Because riddled through scripture are teachings that were to be Christ-like. And even though Christ's sacrifice sealed everything and there's no more sacrifice needed, he said that we're to daily die to ourself. And that lack of selfishness means that in a culture as a sojourner, we will suffer. Even in America. But we're not, most of us. Which means what? We must not really be a sojourner. We must look a lot like the rest of culture. We must really not be just traveling through because we're able to fit in. We're able just to kind of slide in between and behind everyone else. Peter is writing to chosen children of God who are exiles, sojourners, living in a foreign land that he says is a part of the what? What's the D word? Dispersion. Now, let me explain what that means. It's a cool vocabulary word, isn't it? You know? Okay. Um... Oh, for five tonight. Good. The Jewish culture, everything is about what? Everything is about gathering, gathering together as Jews. We have to go to Jerusalem. We have to go to the synagogue. We have to be together. We have all these festivals and we all gather. Well, post Christ, what happens? The Christians are no longer joined to God through a race, but through Christ making the body of Jesus begin to spread. The gospel starts to be dispersed, even into pagan lands like this, creating one of Peter's major themes, and that's the new Israel. We don't just have to come together anymore. And, and the Jews still try. Here's what they try to do. They still built all of these synagogues. Don't confuse a synagogue with, with where we're at now. They built all these synagogues still practicing in many of their ancient Jewish traditions. Where Jesus came and he was like, I'm the perfect sacrifice. There's no more need to go to a synagogue and sacrifice an animal. I am the Passover lamb, Jesus said. So the beautiful thing that you and I get to be a part of is that we get to watch now Peter talk to these elect exiles that are part of the dispersion. In other words, part of the movement of Christ in this land. You see, they scatter, still held together through what? The body of Christ still uniting to remember Jesus and worship. Yes. But it's no longer their identity. Their identity is not found in their race. Their identity is found in Christ and it better be ours. That's why we gather here, listen, so that we can scatter in all of our contexts reflecting Jesus. Are you with me? So he writes to individuals, elect exiles in Asia Minor who are part of the dispersion Are we all together on verse 1? 
Now, um, if there wasn't enough steak to eat on verse 1, then he writes this in verse 2. Oh, boy. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I don't know how you start your emails, but this ain't your typical intro. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was like, it was like he sat down and with his scribe of Sylvanus, and we'll read about him later in chapter five, but it was like he he sat down. He's like, okay, we're, we're just, we're hitting a grand slam right now. We're just, we're coming out with the bang. So let's break these down. All three of them, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. Now, what is he talking about here? Is this a random statement? Elect exiles and dispersion, Pontius, all those things. No, he's talking about the elect. He's talking about the chosen children of God. He's describing to us now what the chosen children of God participate in. He says that they are chosen children of God according to the foreknowledge of God. So look at this. He doesn't just say that they're chosen or the elect. He says that before there was man, God knew that they would be that. That before there was a breathing, beating heart, that God knew who his children would be. He didn't just choose them, he knew them. For some of you, he knew you, that you would be his child. As I was wrestling with this and had many good conversations, and I love my talks with Jeremy and just awesome, the thing that I was overwhelmed with is. Let the wisdom of the world try to explain that one. Just just tell a friend that. Who doesn't believe in God. And let them spout out some ridiculous answer. The foreknowledge of God is so awing that the intention of even knowing it. You see, you you guys understand this. God, when he's writing the scripture, didn't have to let us in on these things. But he does by his grace. So what? So we have a better picture of who he is that we would marvel in awe at his greatness. At his glory. The power of knowing that Christ foreknew, that God foreknew. That Jesus wasn't an afterthought. That this whole plan is just being unveiled before our eyes. The power of that is that you and I could sit in this room tonight and say... What a glorious, great God that he would know and plan. And, and, and some of you are just struggling. Well, you're like, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? I know because as the scripture is unveiled, it continually reveals that the plan is Jesus. We know that God foreknows through Christ. Christ was prophesied. Everything was waiting on Jesus. Christ comes and is the ultimate fulfillment, fulfilling this great promise. And if you're like me, you believe that God doesn't tell lies. So the elect are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the spirits. That's a common word that we use often, sanctification. Now, you're you're already seeing two parts of the Trinity here. And what this piece means, the Hebrew word is Kadesh. And Kadesh means purity. 
So God knows that they're chosen. But then the chosen children of God are continually, by the Spirit of God, being what? Being purified. Being purified. This word, um, sanctify, we see all throughout the Old Testament. And it's a word that has to do with purity. Here's what I love. is the chosen elect aren't just sitting back on the bench now and saying, look at me, I have the elect bumper sticker, I have a bracelet, I wear the elect watch. No, no, no. They're the ones who by the Spirit of God are continually becoming more like Christ. They're being purified. The culture is being drained out of them like a strainer. And they are becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Those are children of God. And there is fruit that is seen in the lives of the elect because of what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is purifying. Listen, I need to tell you something. Some of you, you're not experiencing or sensing that purifying, sanctifying process. My question is why? That's what the Spirit is continually doing in the new birth, in the regeneration that you have in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the elect are chosen by God and His foreknowledge and they're continually being sanctified or purified by the Spirit and it's all for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. First glance, you're like, that's kind of weird, you know? The obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. Listen to this. The sprinkling of the blood is a is an ancient Jewish way of remembering sacrifice. Listen to this though. If he's talking about the elect, there are only three times in the Old Testament where blood is actually sprinkled on people. Interesting, isn't it? The first is on Mount Sinai when Moses comes down and sprinkles the blood as a commemoration of the covenant. And he sprinkles the oxen's blood on the people to remember that. Interesting. The second is the priestly order or ordination of Aaron and his sons as the priests. To commemorate the ceremony, blood is sprinkled on them. And the third, and I think most pertinent for our conversation, the third is for a cleansing of a leper. A leper, you know, one of the most grotesque diseases that you could ever have. And blood is sprinkled on and the leper is cleansed. The elect chosen are foreknown by God, continually purified by the Spirit, so that they may obey Jesus while living in the continual grace that the blood of Christ provides. And that grace for the chosen abounds more and more. That grace for the chosen continues to pour out. And we see it in relationships and we experience it in our daily journeys with him. And friends, that blood that is no longer realistically sprinkled on us, figuratively through the blood of a real Jesus, of a real Savior, continually is cleansing. It doesn't mean we're over and over saved. No, we're once justified but his grace continues to be poured out. So, some pretty weighty stuff. Now, the good thing is, 
Uh, if, if you're like, okay, I want more on the elect, no problem. We'll, we'll keep reading. In fact, come back. Verse 3, oh yeah, we'll be there next week too. And you're like, well, well, so no, all of these themes he's just introducing now. But one of the most burdensome statements that he makes is this last phrase. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, grace was a common way to end a Greco-Roman letter or an intro. And peace was an ancient Jewish way of closing an intro. And here he uses both. This isn't your sincerely, okay? This isn't your much love as I write in my emails. Much love, comma. This isn't your have a nice day. This isn't your whatever ridiculous thing you write in your, you know, your little email signatures. This isn't that. This is, I am writing to a group of chosen believers who are being persecuted for the gospel. So to you, may grace and peace be multiplied because I know as you're reading this, it's tough. I know as you're reading this, some of your brothers are dying because of the gospel. I know that. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it never end. May you somehow find rest in Christ in this crazy time. If you were there in that culture, you would have read those words and they would have sunk so deep into you because you would have needed the encouragement. The problem is many of us in our stinking comfort do not need that encouragement tonight because we feel so good. Oh, you don't need to remind me, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's not a good sign. If that's your heart tonight, if in here in your heart you're like, I don't need to be reminded of that, then my friends, you have gotten way too comfortable and way too complacent. When the statement, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, sinks into your soul. That's when we are experiencing the true fullness of a risen Lord continually sanctifying us and dispersing us for the spread of the gospel. The thing that I keep coming back to, and I've read this letter over and over and over, is I am way too comfortable, man. I'm way too comfortable. Life feels way too comfortable. I don't feel like I look that different than the culture most often. What is it that makes you comfortable? What is it right now in your life? Listen, if anything gives you comfort more than the grace of Christ, it reveals that you found an idol that you're resting in. Comfort, true peace can only be found in Jesus. So if right now your schedule, you're finding comfort in, let me tell you something, you need to be ripped out of that so that you can be reminded that your only comfort is found in Christ. When Peter writes in this 
turmoil-ridden land. He wants to encourage the chosen Christians to rest not in and of themselves, but in Christ. Here's my prayer for us. The things that make you comfortable outside of Christ will tonight begin to be ripped out. That that will be our prayer. God, will you rip us of our comfort? Can we taste suffering? What happens when a group of people start praying that? God, could we taste suffering for you? Because in your scripture it says that that we're to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. What happens when a group of people start saying, God, we desire to suffer. You know what has to happen for that to happen? The comfort has to be ripped out of us. The culture drained from us. So that we find our complete comfort in Christ. No matter what happens in life. No matter what circumstance brings. What for you tonight needs to be ripped out. Broken of. What needs to be ridded of right now. I'm imploring us as a church. As we continue this journey of loving a city. What does it look like for us together to pray that we can suffer? Look, Mark, that's maybe the most scary prayer I've ever heard. And that's why right now is such a perfect time that we're reading 1 Peter. As we're in homes and overwhelmed with need and trying briefly to try to distance ourselves from being a savior, it's in these weekly moments as we journey through this letter that we're going to spend a year reminding each other That there is joy found in suffering. In our marriages, in our relationships, in our lusts, in our existence. God, rip the comfort away. Tonight we're going to have an opportunity. To remember why. We have the privilege of the chance at suffering. Christ modeled it. And the moment you take this broken body of Jesus for granted is the moment when you have become the most comfortable. The broken body of Christ, broken for you, so that the culture could be ripped from you and grace could abound. And Jesus said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. If there wasn't blood shed, then it's very possible that it's just a man on a cross. But it wasn't. It was a God-man bleeding And Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is the covenant in my blood. Now take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Tonight, for believers in this room, this meal for you tonight is a moment for you after having repented, cleansed your heart, is a moment for you to stand up out of your pew and walk towards the representation of what Christ did, receive it, accept it, and the whole time you're walking, you're praying, God, 
rip the comfort out of me. Rip it out. Tear it out. Cut it out. And as you walk back to your seat tonight, after having received and remembering the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity tonight to sit and rest in the comforts that His grace is enough. There is no comfort that you need outside of that. There is none. There's no comfort of a salary. There's no comfort of a relationship. There's no comfort of a job. There's no comfort of a sport. There's no comfort of a gift. There's no comfort you need outside of Christ. So as we as a church begin this journey of 1 Peter, can we begin tonight by remembering Jesus and asking him to rip the comfort out? And together we will pray that God will allow us the privilege at suffering for his name's sake. And then get ready. Get ready. You start praying for that. And we will start experiencing the true fullness of the gospel in action. Can you guys pray with me? God, I pray that um, the areas in my brothers' and sisters' lives that, that have just gotten completely like culture, I pray, God, that you will just, God, I pray that you will help them to pray that you will rip it out. Give them that sense, that desire that they want it to be gone. I pray that same thing for myself. That the areas that I'm struggling in, God, just to trying to trust in me. I pray that by your hand that you will tear it. And God, I pray for us as a church body. those of us in this room chosen by you to be your children I pray God that we'll yearn for continued purification by your spirit so that we can follow your son in obedience I pray that it's not a status symbol but rather the thing that humbles us the most so Christians in this room whenever it is that you sense that you're ready to remember Christ in the suffering of a cross, then come and respond.